Well, good morning, everybody. In just a little over 30 days from now, uh, London will host the 30th Summer Olympics, where over 10,000 of the world's finest athletes from 205 nations will compete in over 200, uh, 300 sporting events of all kinds. Many of us will probably watch the pageantry of the opening and closing ceremonies, as well as maybe the finals of our favorite competition, you know, whether that's gymnastics or wrestling or archery or croquet or water polo, judo or synchronized swimming, as it might be. But all of these athletes in their various disciplines are so far beyond anything that any of us have ever experienced athletically that we are often like paralyzed with like amazement or we're tempted to be actually in despair thinking you know, like what slugs we are. Well, this morning, as Melissa shared, we are launching a brand new sermon series on prayer. Prayer is one of the most powerful and perplexing things. And I fear that many of us, when we read stories in the Bible uh, of characters like Moses or Elijah or the apostles, as well as the biographies uh, of great saints in the faith whose lives were marked by miraculous and powerful answers to prayer, we might be tempted to despair or paralyzed with amazement in the same way as we observe uh, the Olympic competitors. Now, becoming a man or a woman of effective and enjoyable prayers might seem to us as unreachable as becoming an Olympic athlete. Uh, Experiencing prayer is kind of a natural and normal and powerful and vital part of our lives can seem impossible. And my hope is that God will use our five weeks together here to begin to change that for us to to actually experience growth in our prayer life. I believe that God does want us to discover the amazing possibilities of prayer. I have three desires, three hopes, three dreams, as it were, for our time together. First, that our prayer foundations would grow to be biblical and clear and compelling. Secondly, that our prayer practices would grow to be simple and effective. We'll be learning Jesus's model for prayer. And then thirdly, I desire that our experiences grow to reflect all that Jesus promised regarding prayer. Now, we know that occasional joggers never enter the Olympic 10,000-meter trials, nor do weekend swimmers compete in the 200-meter breaststroke. It just doesn't work that way. But every one of those Olympic athletes started at some track or in some pool, and they began to learn the foundations. They grew in their practices until they eventually broke into the ranks of a world-class experience. And so that's what we're after in our time together learning to grow in our foundations, in our practices, and our experience so that we could more completely uh, embrace and experience what Jesus intended for prayer to be. I, I, I just don't think he ever intended prayer to be a burden or an obligation, a, a religious duty, like pushing a wheelbarrow full of guilt around our whole life. I don't think that's what prayer was intended to be. And, and, and yet, when we talk about prayer, all of us would acknowledge that we have a lot of beliefs, a lot of uh, presuppositions, some right and some wrong. We have a lot of baggage, which is why I brought the baggage today, so that we can begin to unpack 
our prayer baggage because we, we carry around a lot of it. I think on the, on the contrast to how we've experienced prayer, God designed prayer to be vital, to be life-giving, to be life-changing, as opposed to something that's kind of bolted onto the periphery of an otherwise normal pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of life. It's to be vital, life-changing, life-giving. And so today we'll, we'll begin our series on the uh, discovering the amazing possibilities of prayer with a message that I've titled Unpacking Our Prayer Baggage. So let's, let's start by praying. God, we pause to do what you told us to do. Pray, our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. And so we bless your name today. We bless your name for the fullness of salvation that comes through Christ. We bless your name for the gift of the Holy Spirit, your personal and powerful indwelling presence. We bless your name for soundness of mind and health of body. We bless your name for your favor that invades our life. We bless your name for our security against an uncertain future. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come that your will would be done right here among us, and not just in this room, but right next door where Vineyard Kids, Lord, are experiencing you and the power of the Holy Spirit. We welcome you here. Put power on your word to our lives, Lord, that we would discover what it is you really intended for prayer in your name. Amen. Well, when it comes to this both powerful and perplexing thing known as prayer, I think many of us wrestle with Questions, And we shouldn't refrain from asking questions because if our Christian faith cannot sustain honest and, and intelligent inquiry, then maybe something's wrong with it to begin with. But questions like, well, why pray? And if God already knows everything that we need because God knows everything right, then why should we pray about them? And how does God decide which prayers get answered? And why doesn't he answer more prayers? Why do sometimes the prayers we think he has said he's going to answer, he doesn't, and then vice versa? Does God really hear the prayers of unbelievers? Does prayer really change things, or does prayer just change us? Am I supposed to pray by tacking on and if it be thy will at the end of every prayer to sanctify it? And do I actually have to say in Jesus' name at the end of every prayer? Can you just think a prayer? Or do you have to actually say or mouth the words? Now, these are great questions. Maybe you can identify having asked a number of those or others in your in your experience. But I have a theory. And if you hang around the vineyard very long, very long, very long you're going to discover that I actually have a lot of theories. But I have a theory that regarding prayer, we often start by asking the wrong questions. I might suggest this morning that we begin looking at prayer by asking, what does God want? And to answer that question directly, I'd invite you to open your Bible or your Bible app on your phone this morning to Matthew's Gospel, the seventh chapter. In the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached, we're going to read these words in answer to the question about prayer, what does God want? Matthew 7, verse 7. Keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For 
Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? I think Jesus is unmistakably clear. God wants to answer our prayers. That's His intent in calling us to pray. He doesn't want to just keep us busy or give us something to do, uh, nor does he tell us to pray, even though he already knows what he's going to do before we ask, just because it's therapeutic. I mean, those are crazy ideas, really. No, he wants to answer our prayers. That's what Jesus said. Now, if I went into my basement and I powered on my Vizio large screen TV and I didn't get a picture I would not immediately conclude that there's no such thing as 990 cable channels nor TV waves in the atmosphere, would I? No. I'd rather assume that something is broken. So I'd check all the plugs, make sure the equipment works. I'd make sure that the internet connection is is viable. Or I'd call Comcast or more likely my son, Philip, who helps me diagnose these kinds of problems. Just because we have not experienced in prayer what God desires, what we just read, doesn't mean that prayer doesn't work. We shouldn't conclude that, well, I didn't, it didn't work. Jesus didn't answer the way I thought or was anticipating, so it doesn't work. No, we would set about to fix things, wouldn't we? We'd look for the, the source of the problem and we would discover our excuses or our rationalizations. And then we would unpack the baggage regarding prayer. Because either our excuses or rationalizations are wrong, or Jesus is wrong. You can't have it both ways. And I would suggest to you this morning that we elevate our foundations, our practices, and our experiences to the level of Jesus's words that we just read. Rather than dumb down Jesus's words and God's desire to the level of our current prayer experience. Okay? God wants to answer far more prayers than we see answered. He wants the best for us. And I think he's, he's not waiting, you know, for us to pray to see, oh, there's another good one I don't have to answer because of whatever. No, I, I think he wants to bless us as his children. He wants our lives to be filled with stories of answered prayer. That's why every week we give you an opportunity on the back of your Connect card to indicate where God's working. I thought I'd read just a couple of you uh, uh, of these to you. Stories of God at work. Uh, Seth and Bree McIntyre, right here, planning to move to Peoria very shortly, right? God opened a huge door for us with my new job in the Peoria area, actually in Henry. I was very unhappy with my job and crying out to God for an open door. We started specifically asking God for an open door near Peoria. Then I received a call about a job I hadn't even applied for. I've been at the job for several weeks now, and I love it. God's provision is good. Now, is that good or what? That is a great story of God at work. Um, Cheryl writes this. Uh, 
An answer to prayer. Currently, I have 40 hours a week again at my regular job, and I also have a second job now God is good at providing. And those are two of many, the stories that we see every week. It's illustrative of how God wants to fill our lives with stories of him moving in our behalf. He wants to bless us as his children. So if Jesus' promise regarding prayer in Matthew 7 that we've just read, if it reveals God the Father's desire to answer prayers on our behalf with no substitutes or nothing bad, that was that was what Jesus was illustrating. If your kids ask for something, you're not going to give them a substitute or something bad. So if this really represents God's desire to answer our prayers with no substitutes and nothing bad, then why do so few of us really believe? Now, I know that not many of us really believe because not many of us really act like it. What I mean by that is this. Oh, yeah, I mean, we, we pray like crazy when we're in a jam or a fix, don't we? We really believe then because, you know, many of us pray like crazy. We make all kinds of bargains with God. Well, if you do this, then I'll do that. I, I promise I will never or I will always. I mean, we, we negotiate these foxhole kinds of prayers all the time, don't we? And then we feel guilty because we don't keep our end of the bargain. Uh, we, we believe when we're at the end of our resources and there's nothing left for us to tap into. We believe then and then we pray. But for the most part, our daily routines don't show that we value prayer as one of the most important and the most powerful activities of life. That's just the human condition. So, Perhaps the next best questions to ask regarding prayer, after we ask, what does God want, are the questions, why don't we believe and why don't we pray? Well, you know, if we were to unpack the, open the, uh, the zip top of, of the prayer baggage, I think we'd find all kinds of reasons in, in the baggage, like why we don't pray. The first is I suspect some of us don't believe and consequently don't pray because we've received no appreciable benefit from prayer. It just hasn't made really a substantial difference in our lives up to now. Now, when I was growing up, I only remember a very few things about prayer, but they certainly didn't reinforce the notion that prayer was vital, life-giving, or powerful. Uh, one thing I remember is my father prayed the same prayer at the dinner table every night. And as Henri kids, we would silently mouth the words right along with him. <laughs> Terribly disrespectful. I knew that he prayed by his bed every every night, but I didn't understand a, a, a word about what that was about. The second thing I remember about prayer is that I prayed the now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take prayer every night as a, as a kid. But it was really out of fear, a fear that, that if I didn't pray it, I'd get jinxed and something bad would happen to me. It was superstition that motivated me to pray, which actually is a horrible motivation for prayer. And actually, that's a very poor prayer to teach your children, okay? I'm, I, I, no offense to any of you who have taught your kids that or if you're praying that with your kids, but I, it's rooted in fear, and it's rooted in a lack of assurance of a, your eternal destiny. You see, if you're a child of God, you don't ever need to pray for the Lord to receive your, your heart or your body or your spirit because you already possess eternal life as your current personal possession. And so you don't need to be worrying that God may or may not like choose to receive you. And so I'm going to suggest 
a prayer that's actually rooted in a proper motive and biblical theology to teach your kids, okay? So here it goes. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my life to keep. I trust in you morning and night to fill, guide, and protect me with all your might. Okay, there you go. That's a new one that you can teach your your kids, and it's biblical, it's powerful, it's positive, it embraces the full promises of God. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my life to keep. I trust in you morning and night to fill and guide and protect me with all your might. I also remember about prayer that that the prayer in our church services were were painful experiences. Uh, They were like waiting for a long, slow freight train to pass. We would stand in the balcony and time the ministers as they prayed around the world and then back again. 18, 20 minutes, they would keep going, and then we would think, will they ever stop? So honestly, I grew up because there was no appreciable benefit from prayer. That's part of my prayer baggage. Maybe it's part of yours. Another reason we don't believe in praise is because we've been disappointed when we've prayed. Our prayers haven't been answered, in some cases, uh, for weeks, months, years, or decades. Or at least maybe they haven't been answered in the way that we had hoped or that we thought God said. And so now we're just perplexed and confused. And we look over our shoulder and think, well, if our experience says that, then why bother praying about that? Uh, If we keep digging in the prayer baggage, we may find out some don't believe and pray because we find prayer boring. Yeah, we can actually admit we find prayer boring. Others would say we don't really know how to do it or what to say. You know, after a couple of minutes, we, we just kind of like run out of gas. Others would say we have monumental presuppositions about what a vital life of prayer is or should be. And it's an Olympic heroic effort. And so we shrink back. We're either paralyzed with fear and uncertainty or thinking, well, we could never arise to that. We compare our experiences to that like of a weekend jogger or a weekend swimmer to the the Olympic athlete, athletes and, and, and their efforts, and we just think, well, I'm so intimidated, why bother? Still others say we found prayer impossible because we thought we should pray for wonderful but remote things that actually have no or, or little interest in our lives. And so we fade. Prayer simply dies from a lack of, uh, from from our efforts to pray about things that are good, but honestly, they don't really matter to us. You know, it might be conflict in Sudan or the persecuted Christians in in Pakistan or orphans in India or the tsunami victims a year later in Japan. And and while these things like stir us, they don't sufficiently motivate prayer. And then outside of these issues, we, we we're just like we feel guilty that we don't have a a heart to be a world Christian. Uh, we, we kind of sense that we, we should, but we're, we're not motivated, and so prayer uh, passion diminishes. And lastly, some of us, if we're digging deep enough in our prayer baggage, might actually find out that we don't believe and are consequently not motivated to pray because we wrestle with the question, can we really change an unchanging God? Our requests, do they make a difference? Has God in his sovereignty, predetermined the whole scope of life anyway, and why Why would we pray, and where do our prayers fit into an unchanging God? I will just say parenthetically, and we're, we're going to look more specifically at this in weeks ahead, 
that our requests do make a difference about what God does or doesn't do. And that's why he invites us in to pray. If you really believe that prayer didn't change anything, then don't pray. I mean, why bother if it's all predetermined? God's response to our prayers is not a charade. As if to say, you just do whatever you want to do, and then God says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. Um, the Bible is clear that God does change his mind. And you can look at the life of Moses or Hezekiah or Jonah uh, as, as examples. And we'll look at that in more specific detail in the weeks ahead. Now, despite the fact that two millennia have passed since Jesus first gave uh, his instructions and modeled prayer, and uh, this has given the church plenty of time to figure it out. Uh, thousands of books have been written about prayer. Hundreds of thousands of sermons have been preached on prayer. And millions of prayers have actually been prayed. Nevertheless, we still hold on to all of these kinds of excuses and rationalizations, don't we? Perhaps you've identified yourself at some points in the, in the message so far. And as much as all of us have this baggage, yet in our deep hearts, I would say that we have an earnest inner cry like that of Jesus' 12 apostles. So here were 12 men who had been taught the rote prayers of religion in the synagogue or in the temple from the time that they were young, but never experienced prayer as powerful or effective. They'd seen Jesus, in contrast, model an intimate and powerful relationship with the living God as his father. They'd seen Jesus pray all night. In some cases, he rose up early in the morning and went out into the wilderness to pray. And then other times when Jesus was ministering to people, his prayers were very short. Stand up, stretch your hand out, be healed, come out. And they were very effective, weren't they? They worked all the time. And no doubt they were curious, like, how does he do that? The apostles themselves were desperate when Jesus discharged them to minister and they couldn't get the job done. They tried doing what he did and it didn't work. And then they'd heard him teach about prayer, about the Father and the coming of the kingdom and how he, we were supposed to like, like desire the coming of the kingdom in our life. And they were curious. And so then they came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Luke 11, verse 1. Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And so, if this morning we are going to begin to unpack our prayer baggage, and we're going to discover the amazing possibilities of prayer, if we're going to say, Lord, teach us to pray, then it would be helpful for us to look at what Jesus taught about prayer, right? Stands to good reason. So we're going to be looking in Matthew 6, you want to open your Bibles, your Bible app to chapter 6 in Matthew, where Jesus taught the apostles how to pray. Now, we're going to peel back to the very basics in prayer, looking at what Jesus taught. Um, I'm all for praying the prayer of Jabez. I'm, I'm all for looking at what Paul taught about prayer in the book of Ephesians, which is kind of his seminal gold standard on prayer. I'm all for reading the books, uh, the biographies of praying saints like, like David Brainerd or John Hyde, or William Carey, a more contemporary mystic like Richard Foster, or an old mystic like Brother Lawrence. I'm all for reading those books and seeing what they have to say about their experiences in prayer. But I think we should start with what Jesus said. That'd be a good place. And I want to encourage you to actually try to put into practice 
what we're going to discover Jesus said about prayer for the next four or five weeks together. Now, before we look at the text, let me remind you that Jesus actually never defines prayer. He doesn't say, here's what prayer is. So he makes some implicit assumptions that we kind of get it. I think when you look at the full scope of his life and ministry as it's revealed in the Gospels, you could kind of conclude that prayer is talking and listening to God. It's pretty simple. Talking and listening to God about the life that we're living together. Prayer could be defined as just directing our thoughts and words to God. You see, prayer is at the heart of Christianity because at the heart of Christianity is a relationship with the living God. And so prayer is at the heart of that. Relationship requires communication, doesn't it? You can't have a relationship without talking. Now, in this sense, prayer is not formulaic. None of you engages in dialogue according to a formula. It's rather simple, but it does require work and attention, doesn't it? So it's not formulaic, but neither is it complicated. And prayer, we're we're going to discover... It can be engaged in anywhere, anytime, uh, at any, in any posture, wearing any kind of clothing. All the baggage you've learned about prayer having to be done at a certain time in a certain way while wearing a certain kind of clothing and having a special music or incense in the background, you can just like unpack all that right now because it's not in the Bible. It might be in your baggage, but it's not in the Bible. It's not what Jesus taught. Anywhere, anytime, anything, any posture, any clothes. And then Jesus outlines here in Matthew chapter 6 on how to pray in what we've, through the years, now called the Lord's Prayer. It might actually more appropriately be called the Disciples' Prayer or the Apostles' Prayer because he's actually teaching us as his followers how to pray. This is in response to the, 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 the appeal, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, no doubt, many of you have memorized this prayer. Many of you in the King James Version because that's the one we were usually raised in. Uh, maybe you've repeated it at the close of a worship service. Maybe it was sung at your wedding. Uh, you might even have it engraved on a nice plaque on your wall or on your screensaver. That's all great, but it's not the intention in which Jesus gave the prayer. Now, I will say, parenthetically, if you have to recite a prayer, this is a good one to recite. It wasn't given merely for recitation, but if you only get one prayer in in a day, this would be a good one to recite, Okay. But but understand, that's probably not the intention in which Jesus gave it, merely to be repeated. It's a darn good one if you have to repeat one prayer. So, now he actually sandwiches the, the actual prayer model with a warning on either side. And I like to call this the Lord's Prayer Sandwich. It's this way that you'll remember it, okay? He tells us what you shouldn't do in verses 5 to 8. And then he tells us what we should do in verses 9 to 13. And then he tells us what we shouldn't do in 14 to 15. So the bread on this sandwich is actually not very tasteful, which is kind of the way Jesus designed it so that it's memorable. But if you're there in Matthew 6, let's begin reading together in verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. When you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. And then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the people of other religions do. 
They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. So pray like this. Now let's just pray it out loud together, all right? Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Several other translations based on the manuscript from which they're, they're derived conclude the prayer um, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, did you notice that Jesus actually contextualized the instruction on prayer with the Lord's Prayer sandwich? And so what he's doing is, is helping us unpack our prayer baggage before we get to the meat, which we'll look at in the weeks to come. So the first prayer baggage, the first item of what you shouldn't do, is to not pray with an intention to impress people. Don't pray to impress people. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to be seen. And if that's what you love to do, then that's all the reward in prayer you're ever going to get. So to pray to impress people with your piety or your religious-sounding words, or your knowledge of the Bible, he says, is hypocritical. Have you ever been around somebody who is obviously praying, not for the needed hand, but for the sake of those who are listening? You know what I'm talking about, the sermon in a prayer, prayers, the I want to impress you with how much about the Bible I know prayers, or a rebuke or correction prayer to the others in the audience. You've all heard those kinds of prayers. Now, the word hypocrite that Jesus uses here comes from a Greek word that speaks about an actor who stood behind a full-length shield on a stage, projecting an image to the audience of a character that he or she is not. And Jesus said, that's what you are when you pray to impress people. It's like you're a fake because you're projecting an image to somebody based on the words you're praying that aren't really who you are. I love Eugene Peterson's message translation of Jesus's words here. This is how his original audience would kind of heard Jesus say it. He says, don't turn your prayer into a theatrical production. That's good, isn't it? Now, it's no prohibition against praying in public. Some have taken Jesus' words as a, as a prohibition of ever actually praying anything in public. He is, he's merely prohibiting prayer that's rooted in the wrong motive in public. He just said, pray quietly, humbly, sincerely to your Father who's listening. And then did you notice that Jesus actually appealed to our baser desires for blessing when he said, when you pray this way, your Father who sees everything will reward you? So there he's strengthening that promise again that prayers to be experienced as vital and life-giving and life-changing. God's desire in prayer is that you be blessed. That's why you pray. And then Jesus contextualizes with yet another piece of bread on the Lord's Prayer sandwich. The second thing that, that we shouldn't do is don't pray with a formula in mind. When you pray, don't babble on and on 
as people of other religions or the pagans do, he said in verse 7. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. But don't be like them. Your Father in heaven already knows what you need before you pray. So some people think that repeating their prayers over and over will do the job, or that saying long prayers will effectively wear God out, and he'll cave into our desire. I just want to let you know right up front, friends, God is not impressible with your prayers. He's not going to go, whoa, that was an awesome prayer. You can't impress God with the quality and length and theology and conviction of your prayer. That God is so much other. He's like the greatest Olympic athlete compared to a bunch of weekend swimmers, weekend joggers. Okay? You're not going to impress God with the quality or the length of the number of prayers that you pray. But then, interestingly, Jesus appeals to the foundational conviction that God the Father is omniscient, that he already knows everything. He said, God the Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask, but go ahead and pray like this anyway. Why does he do that? Because prayer is the expression of a loving, trusting relationship with the Father. It gives us an opportunity to express what's in our heart. Now, Jesus' words here should not be taken as a prohibition against praying some of the time-tested prayers of old. Maybe they're prayers that are crafted through praying of the hours or the Anglican Book of Common Prayers. But, but what he's saying is they're not like a fetish or a charm, like a rabbit's foot or a lucky penny or something like that, that, that they'll work by their mere repetition or, uh, I mean, otherwise God would be answering everything, right? Many people of many traditions around the globe believe that if they pray them long enough or repeated enough, that God will answer their prayer. And his point is, no, prayer is not like a magic charm, a genie lamp, a, you know, a, a lucky rabbit's foot or a, a piece of jewelry that's been handed down from, you know, generations in your, in your family. You kind of rub the ring as you pray. He said, don't, don't be like that, Jesus said. That's, that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is to be the expression of a loving relationship with the Father. It's directing our thoughts and, and our heart, our words to God about the life that we're sharing together. It's about intimate communion with our Father. And then the last bit of prayer baggage that, that the Lord wants us to unpack before he teaches us to pray effectively is what we read in verses 14 and 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Did he, did he really just say that? Like, did, did he say that? That if you, for, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you? Your prayers won't be answered if you harbor unforgiveness? Whoa. That's pretty stout, isn't it? It sounds to me, in a way that God's forgiveness is in condition upon our willingness to forgive others. And you know what? Scholars and theologians have debated for years trying to paint and perfume verses 14 and 15 in a way that don't mean what they really say. And I'm not going to join the debate. I'm just going to read Jesus' words and say, I think he's, he's showing us that we should be motivated to seek reconciliation as much as is possible within us as the soil out of which Effective prayer is going to work. And so, friends, we're unpacking the prayer baggage. That's the, 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 the 
bread on the uh, on the sandwich with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask God to to, to spend this next week uh, paying close attention to what it is we actually believe about prayer and why. Let's look at our foundations. What are the convictions? Where do we get them? Are they rooted in the Bible or, or superstition or our experience? Secondly, take an honest look at your practices. Honestly, this week. And when you're in your small groups this week, for those of you who are in one, and if you're not, it'd be a great week to join. We're actually going to talk to each other about our prayer practices with, with, with no exaggeration. How often and with what degree of expectation do you actually pray in a given day, in a given week? And then thirdly, we're going to look at the promises that we've read today in Matthew 6 and 7 with an open mind to see how our experiences in prayer actually stack up with with regard to how Jesus described God the Father's heart. So just this week, just pay a, a, a mental note in uh, in, in your, uh, maybe in a, in a journal or online or in a, in a piece of a, a, a notebook paper and a card stuck in your Bible. Look at your foundations, look at your practices, and then look at your experience in prayer and just see how they all stack up to what we've caught as a glimpse of what God desires for us today. As we enter these next few weeks now together uh, we in the, in the school of uh, discovering the amazing possibilities of prayer, that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll, we'll actually be leaning into experiencing prayer as God intended it to be vital, life-giving, life-changing. Lord, we're, we're grateful that you invite us into the school of prayer. And you, that you were grateful, uh, we're grateful, Lord, that, that you were willing to teach your apostles uh, when they asked you, teach us to pray. And so it's with that intention, Lord, that we, we say we, we want to experience all that, that you have for us in prayer. We don't want to leave anything on the table. We want our life and our, uh, our experience to, to reflect what you desire. We pray that you would propel us forward, no matter where we're at on the journey in the next weeks, Lord, that we could grow in our experience of prayer. Lord, now as we continue our worship by giving our gifts to you in the offering and the lifting up of our hearts and our hands in song, again, we we just pray that you'd receive these gifts for what they are. Our intention is to say to you, Lord, we love you. We want our lives to count for you. And so receive these gifts as the tokens of what they are in your name. Amen.